Welcome to the second episode of The Surgery, featuring Dr. Demolition himself, Dr. Terry Cornby. In this episode, Terry explains his many problems with construction companies, the issue of embodied carbon, the ongoing saga of the Didcot disaster investigation, and what he would do if he was made Minister of Construction. So sit back and hear what Dr. Terry Quamby has to say on all this in this new episode of The Surgery. You know, I could go on forever about this, and so could many other demolition contracts, couldn't they? But, I mean, let's face it, if you think about the average um, constructor, I mean, they have regarded, I mean, this is historically for years, they've regarded demol the demolition process as a, a necessary evil, really, uh, and that if they've got a demolition contractor on site, then they're going to put up with him for a shorter time period as is practically possible. Um, and there's many reasons for that, I'm sure, but but from our point of view, or, or certainly from my point of view, um, they've always looked upon us, constructors have always looked upon us, uh, our sector has been low-skilled. Um, and everybody that works within our sector has needs to be managed. Um, nothing could be further from the truth, as we all know, but... To be perfectly honest, if you want to work for a main contractor these days, that's what you've got to accept. You've got to accept the fact that um, your client, can, and they will be your clients, or you'll be novated to them by a client, and, and you'll have to be managed through that process. It's a very frustrating um, point um, to, have, to have to be involved in. But, you know, they've been programmed to believe that <clears throat> if they don't manage us, then... Uh, the increase in the risk that's likely to unfold to themselves might lead to prohibition and prosecution. Uh, it's a nonsense, I know, but um, that, that's the main problems I've got with constructors today. They just don't trust us. It, it, it's always been a mystery to all of us, I think, that, that works within our sector as to why constructors have not educated themselves better uh, towards the demolition process and the methodology that's involved in it. Uh, and if they did, they'd soon learn um, that of their mistake in, in thinking that this whole process is a, is a largely unskilled business. Uh, and they will certainly come to the realisation that it's certainly not unskilled and it's very scientific in its, in its approach. When you think about skill sets... I don't think there's any other industry sector um, in the whole of the, 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 the UK where the employees of, within that sector have to know or learn um, so many different aspects of, uh, of business, uh, of safety, of the environment, uh, of chemicals, of hazards. No, you name it, there isn't anybody else that I've ever come across that uh, that an ordinary guy on site has to have the knowledge of so many different aspects of working. Uh, and constructors don't ever seem to appreciate that. I, I know that over the years there's been um, 
an acceptance that the CCDO scheme, for example, um, does have a good standard, does produce operatives who have been trained or assessed at least anyway, um, to a certain standard, and that in, in many respects, the CCDO scheme is superior to some of the schemes that are offered to um, construction um, operatives today. Uh, but having said that, I still hear the stories from some demolition contractors um, whose clients have insisted that their guys uh, undertake the CSCS, SMSTS um, uh, training. And, and as we all know, um, SMSTS has got nothing at all to do with demolition. There's no demolition element within it. Uh, so wondering why um, SMSTS has got to be uh, the thing that a demolition operative has to undertake is, is a nonsense, isn't it? You know, the CCDO scheme is far superior. They don't understand the demolition process. They don't understand what, um, what needs to um, be considered. They, they've always thought it as, as being a low skilled activity. And, um, and that piling, uh, in particular, is has always been part of the construction process, and therefore, during the development stage of that project, it's been discussed down the line about what needs to happen uh, at certain times of that construction process, and so the timeframes will have been allotted um, quite a long way in advance for the pilers to come in, and, and therefore. And as we all know, pilots work to a set time frame because they're always in demand. And as soon as they finish one job, they're out, they're out on the next one. <laughs> why, why don't constructors think the same way about us? I mean, do they think that we're just sitting on the sidelines waiting for them to give us the opportunity to do our work? Um, no, because that's certainly not the case, is it? Um, for, for, for most times, uh, for most contractors anyway, um, during the year, you know, we we work within set timeframes, don't we? We we've got our limitations in in terms of um, uh, operatives and plant and equipment that we've got sitting on the sidelines for use. So, why don't constructors get the demolition contractor involved at the initiation of a project? So, and, you know, and I'm talking probably twelve months in advance of a of a large scale building development being undertaken. It's got to be at least 12 months, hasn't it, when they're talking about it, putting finance packages into place, but getting planning permissions and everything sorted out there. At that stage, why don't they bring in the demolition contractor that they have every intention to use? And uh, the, the time frames can be set within that process for the demolition, just the same as it can be set for piling. It's just that we're never given that consideration. And I, and I think it's simply because... Um, we're a necessary evil that needs to happen. And, and as soon as they can get us on and get us off, the, the sooner they can start earning money. They don't think they can earn money out of a demolition contractor. But believe you me, they, they really truly can. Because, because if, they, if they planned and thought about um, what, in, what 
it entails in the demolition process and what materials can be gained and recycled from that process, then they've got an opportunity themselves to utilise the materials that are coming off that demolition site and therefore save money by buying virgin materials, uh, you know, in terms of aggregate or, 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 or even in, in terms of um, steelwork, which um, is a possibility can be used. Pipes that can be that can be saved and sent for drawing, for example, that can be pulled out and used as conduit piping and one thing and another. You know, there's lots of savings that can be made if it's put into the planning process at the beginning and the inception of a, uh, a project. Um, companies like my own and, and others um, have decided, uh, and, and we haven't worked for a main contractor now for, it's over seven, seven or eight years now. Uh, and there are lots of other demolition companies that are following suit now and deciding that they don't want to tender for work with main contractors, simply because it's the process is too elongated. Uh, and there's never um, a guarantee that you'll be dealt with in a fair uh, and equitable manner. Um, sometimes you do chop your nose off to spite your face by the fact that you've not got as many tenders um, sitting on your desk for you, for you to consider work. Uh, but you have to temper that with uh, the ease in which you can manage your own uh, projects by being the principal contractor, definitely, and rather rather than being a specialist contractor, um, working for a principal contractor. Turnover suffers, there's no doubt at all about that because um, you don't get to tender for the, the larger jobs if, uh, because most of the time there, uh, the big construction boys will be acting as middlemen uh, and taking the cream off the top, shall we say. Uh, and so your turnover will or may suffer, but at the end of the day, turnover's not king, is it? Profit's king. Um, and if you're managing yourself and you're managing your own process, then you can generally accept the fact that um, your profit margins are not going to suffer and they're, and they're still going to stay healthy. And certainly that's been the, the case with us, and hopefully it's the case with other demolition contractors that may follow suit in the future. For a start, um, if I was made the construction minister, the first thing I would do is resign. Um, because I wouldn't want to be the construction minister, uh, but I would want to be the minister for demolition, <laughs> uh, which would be quite unique, wouldn't it? Uh, can't ever see it happening, but um, but we can keep our fingers crossed and, and hope that uh, one day the government sits up and, and says, actually, um, the demolition process is a, a key factor and does need to be considered greater. And therefore, um, we need to look at, it, uh, look at it from a government level. If I did become the Minister for Demolition, then the, one of the first things I would do is review the regulations and the acts that, um, that determine the workplace, uh, or what happens in the workplace. 
Um, so I'd, I'd be looking at worker safety. I'd be looking at plant and equipment in use. Uh, I'd be looking at training and assessment. Uh, and I'd be looking at the environmental acts and regulations. Uh, because, let's face it, they make life very difficult for demolition contractors at the moment. Uh, uh, not, just de not just difficult, but frustrating as well. Uh, and some examples of that I can give you are, um, uh, like, the legal definition of waste, for, for, for one thing, and uh, where um, we've got this ridiculous notion that everything is a waste, despite the obvious fact that it's anything but. Um, so, yeah, I'd definitely have a look at that. Um, uh, I'd, I'd look at the ludicrous processes where the environmental acts describe um, describe uh, products and materials uh, as a, a waste uh, and make it very difficult then to handle and to recycle and or even to reuse. Uh, so there are lots of aspects there that I think in terms of the environmental regulations that could be changed to, to make it easier for a demolition contractor to, uh, to, manage, their, uh, to, to manage their work. Um, I'd write the British standard, rewrite the British standard actually, because um, I, I think as you know, I sat on the last review committee for BS 6187-2011. And um, out of 17 people that sat on that committee, I was the only person there that had any demolition experience, which was a little bit frightening at the time. Uh, despite my objections at that time there, we had refurbishment written into our British standard. Uh, so that would be one of the first things that I would throw out would be the the refurbishment side because uh, it seems that the only people who know that demolition contractors don't undertake refurbishment are demolition contractors. Um, it seems to be a, a, a fact that everybody else thinks that refurbishment is part of a demolition process, which it's not. <laughs> we all know it's builders and constructors that undertake refurbishment, not demolition contractors. Uh, so that definitely needs to change. Uh, there's also, I would task NGOs such as BRE, Syria, uh, and, um, uh, and, and, and other organizations such as that to stop wasting time and wasting money on researching uh, projects that are not going to benefit the demolition industry whatsoever because all they're doing is looking at modeling or coming up with um, waste strategies uh, that 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 really demolition contractors are never ever going to use uh, because they're all designed for academics or constructors to look at so I think there's, there's, a, there's an awful lot of changes that need to happen uh, on the fringes of the construction industry with the organisations that work with and to and for constructors, uh, because we just seem to get drawn in and pushed and prodded around uh, and, and are expected to conform to, to silly notions, silly projects that are not going to benefit the demolition industry. They're not going to 
cost-benefit demolition methodology, and they're not going to save money at the end of the day. I think if you take my case uh, as an example, um, having started in the industry sector in the late 1960s, the the uh, types of structures that, that we were dealing with at the time were, were not very complex. Um, probably the biggest structures at that time would be a mill. Um, so you might have seven or eight stories, seven or eight floors, where machinery would have been uh, operated on, e on each floor. The framework of the building might have been raw iron, was more likely to be cast iron. The floors were more likely to be timber. Um, so the process wasn't difficult to take them down. And the plant and equipment we had at the time, although very basic, uh, was sufficient enough for us to, to manage manage that work and to clear the sites with it. But <laughs> if, I'd have, if I could look back uh, into a crystal ball in the 1960s and envisage what would be available today in the 2020s, um, would I have been amazed? Absolutely I would have been amazed, wouldn't I? Because technology has moved forward in at such a pace now and the types of plant and equipment in use today uh, that we could have only ever dreamed of in, in, in those days. Over those years, it's just as well that we have had innovation and technology in plant and equipment because the building process has, in, has increased. Um, the buildings have become more complex. The buildings have become higher. Um, um, with the plant and equipment we had in those days, um, so I'm going back 50 years, for example, we could never have hoped to have coped with the structures that uh, a demolition contract is dealing with today. So yeah, plant um, innovation, plant technology and equipment technology does need to keep pace with the types of structures that a demolition contractor is, is tasked with taking down now. Um, but if you're looking at the future, which, are, which I think is what, where you're heading in, in your question, is our sector, is the demolition sector likely to carry on working in the same way that we are now in the future? Um, I think the answer would probably be no. Um, I've seen some massive changes in the last 50 years, but I have no doubt whatsoever that the changes that are likely to happen in the next 50 years will eclipse anything that's gone before. Uh, I know that's a, a quite a broad <laughs> sweeping statement to make, uh, but... You know, we've been discussing design for deconstruction for years. I've sat on committees at BRE. I've sat on committees at, at, um, at Syria. I've sat in with DEFRA discussing what's likely to happen in the future, what products are likely to come on stream, how we, how we can uh, manage those products, how we can take them out of the built environment, what it's likely to happen to them. Can we recycle them or can we not? Uh, so many questions that have been asked over the years, and we still haven't got all the answers for them. There's no doubt at all about that. But the, the one thing that is looking likely is, is uh, modular build. 
um, where within those modules, they'll be fitted together uh, and they'll come intact with all the utilities. They'll come intact with all the electrical um, connections and they'll be capable of being taken apart, um, swapped around and reused again. So uh, is the word demolition likely to still be in the dictionary in 50 years time? Possibly not. You know, in, in terms of dismantling, deconstruction, decomposition, those sorts of words are, are likely to be uh, in the vocabulary rather than the word demolition itself. Uh, so there will be a lot of changes, uh, as there have been over the last 50 years. Uh, it'll be an exciting time, I think. I'm aware of the uh, Tulip project. And um, for our readers and, uh, and those that are watching this uh, uh, podcast at the moment. The, it's, um, it's it basically a large tower, uh, hollow tower with a lift in it, going up uh, quite a number of floors and with a viewing um, platform at the top there, which is supposed to give tourists um, a, a, a bird's eye view over the London skyline. And it's been said that it will enhance the historical legacy of London. But you know, <laughs> there's innumerable tall structures in London. Uh, most of them are, you can go up there, uh, where you can get a good view of the whole of London outside of it, even when you're doing your business, uh, uh, or having a business meeting in them, for example. Um, so I don't see the advantage of having another tall precast concrete structure that does nothing other than allow people to go up here and, and look over the rooftops of London. Uh, so I'm not surprised that there's been a lot of discord in, um, in getting the planning permission to have this thing built, uh, which doesn't look as though it's ever going to get built, uh, by the way. Uh, so uh, as far as I'm concerned, um, it's not about increasing um, the scope for tourism. I think it's about increasing the scope for revenue for somebody, isn't it, at the end of the day? Uh, but these sort of high-profile uh, projects, they, they, they're they not confined to uh, cities such as London, are they? I mean, this happens all over the world, isn't it, where um, I want to build something higher and bigger than anybody else has built before that. Um, and that leads us back on to some of the uh, things we were saying earlier on, isn't it? Uh, at the end of its, its uh, useful life cycle, all of those types of structures, as magnificent as they are, um, have to come down. Uh, and who's going to take them down? A demolition contractor will take them down, won't they? Um, what training, what expertise, what knowledge has been imparted to the demolition contractor to do that job? Nothing. Very little, isn't there? Uh, because uh, for most of the time, constructors don't give demolition contractors any advice about how to take down a building. Um, structural engineers usually sit on a fence, don't they? Because they don't want to get involved in making a mistake and, and coming up with a calculation that doesn't make any sense. 
Um, so it, it, it will fall down to a demolition contract to, to take all these types of structures down there, you know, and we've got great examples in London without going anywhere else in the world, like the Shard, for example. Um, that's going to be technically challenging, isn't it, to take that structure down, particularly where it's placed, right over a busy uh, London railway station um, next to a hospital. Um, but I think also, you know, getting on to the, where we just touched a bit earlier on with, think, uh, with this subject of waste, it's not just the size and the complexity of these structures that uh, are being built or being proposed to be built that uh, will form a, a, a major problem for demolition contractors to tackle. But it, it, it's also the products that are being placed into that built environment that will cause the greatest problem to demolition contractors um, because um, end-of-life cycle considerations um, have not been given enough consideration, shall we say, by developers, by architects, um, by designers. Uh, and quite a number of those materials, and, and we are dealing with a, a, a hell of a lot of them now, aren't we, you know, in, in this day and age, where the realisation is, is that some of them are inherently hazardous um, in their design and build. Um, a great many of them um, have no recycling value and no reuse value whatsoever. And they're expensive to dispose of. Uh, and those are the issues, or, or, or the greater issues, I think, than just a large, complex, high, wide, big, cantilever or whatever it is type of structure because most demolition contracts can deal with that um, uh, quite easily. Uh, it, it's just a matter of um, researching and developing methodology to, to deal with it. It's the products inside those buildings that, that are the major factor for many demolition contractors to consider now and into the future. Carbon usage, it seems to be quite a major factor today. Um, uh, there's also the, the issues that have been placed on, um, on CFCs uh, uh, and, and, and other such uh, gases and, and chemicals that are present within certain types of materials. Uh, so I don't think it's just a matter of looking at carbon usage itself and why demolition uh, should fall away and, uh, and, and make way for refurbishment or, or the regeneration of a, of a structure. If it's, if it's not fit for purpose, it's not fit for purpose. And therefore, the, the cost factors will be greater to keep that building as it is and, and to change its, its makeup than it would be to take it down. Um, the thing is, is, as I've alluded to earlier on, is it's not necessarily the demolition process that, that um, uh, creates the greatest amount of carbon uses or carbon wastage, because 
if those materials that were gained out of that structure were of a sufficient quality and standard that they could be reused or at the very least recycled, then that um, carbon usage or wastage would be reduced dramatically by keeping those materials on site and ready to use in the new build. Now, why can't that be a realistic consideration? No, why should it be that everything is classed as a waste and therefore has to be dealt with as a waste, which takes time, it takes cost, uh, it takes effort, it, it, and, it, and it imparts on efficiency overall for the whole of the project. You know, there are many factors that need to be considered here, not just one, and environmentalists need to start thinking about that on those terms, rather than just looking at it um, uh, with, uh, with blinkered eyes. Well, you know, Mark, I'm not really um, comfortable in discussing the did cot disaster, really, um, because as, as I previously stated, I've, I've, I'm not really qualified to comment um, because I've had no input into the investigation. Um, in the early days, I was called in by HSE um, shortly after it happened and asked if I would take uh, or I would join the investigation team. I turned it down. And not because I didn't think that I could contribute. Um, it was because I had no faith um, that the HSE could initiate an investigation and come up with an answer in a quick enough time frame so that it benefited everybody. Uh, and I think, um, having looked at it now, where we're six years on, is it? Um, I think I was justified in 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 uh, in that concern at the time, uh, but um, do you know there's been a number of similarly designed power stations throughout Europe that have been taken down in this six-year time frame, and thankfully, um, without a, a similar type of incident occurring. But you know. Why has uh, a similar uh, uh, incident not occurred? Is it, is it because uh, we've been lucky? Um, or is it for, from some other factor? We don't know, do we? But if we'd have had that report from HSE or from other specialists to give us an indication of what went wrong and why it went wrong, uh, it would have been a much greater benefit to not just the demolition industry, but society as a whole in keeping people safe at work. Uh, and that's one of the great tragedies as well in that uh, this investigation has not been completed and it's not been brought to a conclusion. We're actually in the ludicrous position at the moment uh, and I, I don't really want to go into it in too much detail um, because we're, uh, many of us are still researching this and collecting data uh, and also trying to understand some of the um, implications which are quite serious uh, 
uh, in dealing with waste wood. Uh, and the Environment Agency have initiated this process um, where there are recommended position statements in place, two of them in, in basis, that deal with um, waste wood. And the Wood Recyclers Association, in conjunction with uh, other interested parties, and then FDC being one of them, have produced a guidance note on what needs to be looked at, what needs to be considered in terms of waste wood and, and uh, where it's been used in the built environment uh, and uh, what time frames as well, because the, the time frames are, are, are important as well, uh, because we're, we're looking at wood that could possibly be of a hazardous nature. And so it's been impregnated. Uh, for example, with preservatives and and, uh, and similar chemicals, and uh, and whether they're a danger to the environment, and whether they're a danger to the health and safety of those that are handling them, uh, it's quite an emotive subject at the moment, and um, we're now in a position uh, uh, where uh, a number of in fact, a significant number, not just a small number, but a significant one number of, um, of waste wood handlers. So the people that demolition contractors traditionally send their, their, uh, their waste wood to for processing are now refusing to accept any uh, waste wood from a demolition site unless it's accompanied by a consignment note. Uh, with the appropriate EWC waste codes. Um, that might not sound difficult at all until one considers that if it's a hazardous material, you have to treat it as a hazardous material and therefore it falls within a certain amount of the environmental regulations. Uh, it's generally going to cost more to dispose of that wood because it's hazardous and, and cannot be used for any other process. Uh, and the cost has to be borne by somebody. So is that cost borne by the demolition contractor himself or is it passed on to the client? And is the client likely to accept those additional costs? Uh, so there are a number of issues at play here. Uh, and, um, and it's something that um, that we all need to think about and we all need to consider. I believe at, the, at this moment in time that people are uh, burying their heads in the sand over this uh, particular topic and that most demolition contractors are sending their wood uh, away as hazardous with uh, accompanied by a consignment note. But if you read the guidance in the uh, Wood Recyclers Association, it, it doesn't say that that has to be the case at all. Um, but it, but there is, uh, or should be in place, a regime for sampling that material to determine whether it has a hazardous nature or whether it doesn't. Um, irrespective now, I believe, of what the guidance says, and that is if it's... Um, Earlier than 1950, for example, it's unlikely to contain any uh, hazardous substances such as preservatives because they weren't used in those days. But 
even if you're taking down a 1930s, 1940s or 1950s factory that contains a lot of uh, a lot of uh, waste wood, you're not going to be able to dispose of that as a non-hazardous material because the the wood recycling sector is refusing to accept it off any demolition site unless it it's um, sent as a hazardous material accompanied by a consignment note. Uh, and there shouldn't be a need to do that if you can prove that that material fits in with the criteria that's um, stipulated within the Waste Recycling Association's guidance. There's also another factor at play, and that is the sampling regime that you have to undertake to determine whether you've got hazardous materials in that wood or not. Nobody seems to understand, and nobody can tell me anyway, uh, for one, about what the trigger level limits are of the testing. Which is amazing, isn't it, when you consider that you're actually paying for a laboratory to undertake sample, or you're taking the sampling, but you're paying a laboratory to do the testing of those samples and to determine what um, what chemicals, what uh, substances are, uh, or are or may be uh, within that wood material. And although you will get a report back that says there's so many uh, micrograms or grams per, per million or per hundred thousand, it doesn't actually state what the cutoff level is between hazardous and non-hazardous. Uh, and I can't find that out at this moment in time. And that's why I say I don't want to say too much at the minute, because I'm, I'm still carrying out research in this, uh, in this subject. But believe you me, we will get to the bottom of it at the end of the day. And we must force the waste wood recycling sector to accept wood that we say is non-hazardous simply because we can determine what the uh, trigger level is for uh, or between hazardous and non-hazardous, which we can't at the moment. Neither can they. Nobody can tell us. Even the laboratories can't tell us what that is, um, which is a ludicrous situation for, uh, for our sectors to be in at this moment in time.